Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, I'm going to try to do this now. Greetings from Prague. You know, remember that if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium. Well, with me, if it's Tuesday, it's Prague. And tomorrow is Nicholsburg and Eisenstadt. And Thursday should be Vienna. And Friday and Shabbos and then Budapest. I'm here in Europe uh, leading a tour that we planned for a while um, of Central Europe with the famous Jewish centers, Jewish history tours I do. And we spent yesterday and today in Prague. This morning, for example, we saw what they have left over, the shoals. Not really anything left over. The Altenoy shoals left over. But the other place that turned into these uh, Gucci tourist, uh, what should I say, Jewish museums and things like that. So they're on the site, the original synagogue, where you can't really get anything. The only uh, real field, the old Prague, I would say, is in the Altenoy uh, synagogue. Uh, Prague itself surprises people because it's actually a very fancy and pretty city. And people think of it, I know how people think, you know, Prague is like an old place, you think of it in black and white, and like some dreary situation. And it's quite the opposite. It's a very picturesque city, uh, all kind of different architecture. And when you look at it today, it's not exactly, it looked like in the time of Notre Dame, of course, or something like that 200, 300 years ago. But uh, in some respects, there are similarities. Prague, I've been going from shul to shul and giving my talks, and... Uh, or other things to see here as well. I would just uh, share with you one insight because I'm sitting here in one of these European type, uh, you know, restaurants on the where you sit outside, you know, outside restaurant. Prague is a place where you can walk around with a yarmulke actually. And what you, or at least what I'm reminded of is that Prague is the beginning of, shall I say, the uh, modernist uh, intrusion of the state into uh, Yiddishkeit. Uh, for a long, long time, uh, Prague was the capital of Bohemia, a, a country in the middle of Europe, and then for many years ruled by the Austrian Empire, part of the Austrian Empire. And uh, it was traditional, like the old-fashioned autonomous communities that I've spoken about many times in my lectures and podcasts and things like that. Uh, Prague had the largest kahila, uh, 11,000 Jews, that's larger than any other place. Just to give you an idea I'm talking about, at the time that Prague had 11,000, Frankfurt had like 2,000, uh, Vilna, I think, had like 3,000, uh, much smaller. So this is quite a place, and that's why you had many synagogues, most of which are destroyed or have been converted into, um, what shall I say, uh, uh, modern uh, museums, but uh, Jewish museums, which you... Uh, have to understand over here is that once upon a time it was a larger flourishing community, although they certainly had their share of machlekes. I was telling a famous story this morning, just to give you an idea of how vicious the internal Jewish politics was in Prague. Once upon a time, way back when, in the middle of the 1600s, when Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, I think his name was, I think, was the uh, Rav here. Uh, just imagine trying to be rabbi of 11,000 rabbis. And the very famous story that he had his enemies, and they wanted to undermine him, and it was Sukkot, 
and he posked that a certain esrog was not kosher. And, you know, in the old days, it was hard to get an esrog, right? Uh, uh, so every community had like a very small number of esrogim, one of which, of course, is going to be used by the shliach Sibor. Uh, he has to, one by the Rav, and one by a couple of rich people. And then there was a one or two or three used by the community at large, which is why I used to get shalos in the years of old of what happens to an esrog that's already like crushed the bits by being handed by 100, 200 people by the second or third day of Sukkot. Anyway, to make a long story short, his enemies, uh, after finding out that he had declared a certain esrog puzzle, went to a visiting rabbi uh, to ask him, just objectively, in other words, without telling him the context, what do you think of this particular esrog? Well, my friends, the visiting rabbi was the shach, the famous shach on the Shulchan Aruch, who was running away from the Cossack massacres in uh, Poland and fled to Bohemia and had to be in Prague at that time, happened to be in Schwuz, and the shach was, um, I won't say silly enough, but silly enough to answer, give, give an answer to the question, without thinking, why would somebody come to ask me a Shiloh when you already have a rope? And he said, in his opinion, he looked it over, he thought it was kosher. Whereupon the president of the shul, the story goes, went to the chazan in that shul, and he says, I don't care what the rope says, the shah says it's kosher, and I'm ordering you to use this esrog when you do Hallel and bench esrog today and all the rest of it which is a deliberate and public insult to the authority of the Rav of Prague, because he's the one who poskins the Esrik is no good. So it wasn't a question about the Esrik. See, even a Dvar Mitzvah can be used for a subject of Machlekes, can it? And um, it's interesting. That's called, you know, you ever heard of a Mitzvah above Avera? Here you have Avera above a Mitzvah. <laughs> Avera above a Mitzvah using the Esrik. And the famous story is that the Chazim was afraid to lose his job, so he said, okay, he wasn't happy about it. And the Rav walked into Shoal, and he started using the wrong Esrik, but... You know, he was all upset and insulted, but he didn't want to say anything. The master davening up, and when the time came to bench Esrik, and the uh, chazan picked it up and turned it upside down, as you do, you know, when you make the bracha, it fell down on the ground and the pit and broke, and the Esrik was puzzled, and that was a sign. Min the story goes, that, you know, the rabbi was right, or he shouldn't have been insulted. And the shach, as the story goes, said, I am so sorry I got involved. I will never pass in a shal in Prague again, because you can't trust these people. Somebody comes to you, with so what seems to be an innocent child, there's all politics behind it. Even me, little me, I've had sometimes Balabatim and the come ask me, quote unquote, a simple question. Really, it's all politics behind it, and they're really trying to diss somebody else. So you have to be very careful uh, to only deal in shilas with people whose probity and honesty you trust, because there's a lot of schnooks out there, and they're trying to use you. Just like the guy in the story wanted to use the asterisk in order to advance his political agenda against the Rav. So there are people today that they'll call you up for shilas. Or to send an email, I get a lot of shots of an email. And it could be that what they're really doing is trying to diss somebody else and use that as ammunition against them. Oh my goodness, welcome to Prague, welcome to Jewish history. Uh, but there's a lot of positive things over here. Uh, I'm a coin, so I can't go in, but yesterday he went to the Note of Yehudas Kever. That's a big place. And today he went to the Maral's grave. The Czechs over the centuries, especially the communists, really a bunch of mumsers. The communists were super mumsers. And they took all the Jewish cemeteries and they used the, uh, the you know, the Masevas, the, st the stones for streets, and they picked up the bodies and just threw them in a garbage can. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how bad they were. I happen to know this. You know, there are different communist governments in Eastern Europe until they fell. And the one in Czechoslovakia happened to be the, 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 the lousiest, no, was the most disgusting. It's interesting in that particular regard because Prague is the capital of Czechoslovakia. And Czechoslovakia, before the communists took over, actually had a reputation of being relatively friendly to the Jews. Not that the Czechs are big tzaddikim, because I know the history, they are not big tzaddikim. They've had their share 
of anti-Semitism, but there was a Czech leader, a person who emerged as the, uh, shall I say, the George Washington of Czechoslovakia, whose name was Thomas Masaryk, Thomas Garig Masaryk, who uh, became, as I say, the moral leader of the Czech independence movement, and, uh, and he founded the country, and uh, he turned the people around. Notice he made it politically incorrect to be anti-Semitic, which is quite a, a feat in Central Europe where there's such a long tradition of anti-Semitism. Uh, very briefly, uh, he was a professor here in the University in Prague in the 1890s when they uh, arrested a guy for Alila's dump. Can you believe it? It was late as 1900. The, in the Austrian Empire, in Bohemia, in, 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 in Prague, they arrested a guy who was a little bit uh, mentally defective, I believe, named Leopold Hilsner, a Jew, and they said he killed a girl, he used the blood for the matzah. I'll say it again, this was prosecuted by the state. You know, think you believe that? And, uh, of course, the anti-Semites had a field day. They don't care about truths or facts or anything like that. And all the Czech newspapers went wild, and they all said he did it. And it was an orgy of uh, verbal violence against the Jews. They're all guilty. By that time, the Jewish community in Prague and Bohemia was so assimilated that they were basically Judaically emasculated. They didn't even know how to answer. It was super disgusting because they knew nothing about Yiddishkeit. Uh, who was it that said, I think uh, Aristotle, how shameful it is that someone can defend themselves physically but does not know how to defend themselves verbally? And that's what happened to the Jews in Prague. And make a long story short, this guy Hilsner was convicted by a jury in 1899, I think, of killing the girl. Can you believe it? And uh, all the Czechs went crazy over this, and they had a field day, and they loved it, and now they're going to get the Jews. It's a good thing the Czechs at that time did not have their independence, but rather that the, the Czech Republic areas, Bohemia, was ruled by the Austrians, and the Emperor of Austria was Franz Josef, who was a friend of the Jewish people, and he said, I don't, I don't believe this. He actually had an interview with a Czech rabbi, a conservative guy, actually, not from, in Kish, but he, on purpose, the Emperor had a, on purpose an interview with him, so they could give out a press release where the Kaiser, where the Emperor said, I think this, uh, this whole trial is baloney. But once the guy was convicted in a fair trial, there was a problem. And what Franz Josef did was he commuted to life imprisonment. In other words, he's supposed to be hanged and he commuted for life imprisonment. Which wasn't fair either, if you think about it, because the guy didn't do it. But at least he didn't kill him. And that way, I think 20 years later, he was able to get out of jail. Although he lost 20 years of his life on a charge, he never did it. I'm just trying to show you how disgusting these people are. It's checks under tzaddikim. There was one guy... Professor Masaryk, who was a professor of philosophy in the university, and he said, this is a lie. The guy didn't do it. You see? I said, I'm not a particular friend of the Jews, but the guy didn't do it. And you can't convict somebody like that. And they all said, you just shut up, get out of the way. He said, I'm not shutting up. And he wrote articles in the paper and all this sort of thing, made a whole business proving, in uh, first of all, from a criminal point of view, that the evidence was tainted. And second of all, from a general point of view, what are you, crazy? The Jews eat matzah with blood, are you out of your mind? I'll say he's a guy. And he got in a lot of trouble. They broke his windows. I think he was beaten up. Uh, he was fired from the university. There was a whole tower on And he was almost tarred and feathered. And he said, I don't care. The truth is the truth. And a lie is a lie. And um, they said, you're interfering in the development of Czech culture. Uh, see what Mama Zerim they were? And he's like this. If the Czech culture is going to build on a lie, I want to have nothing to do with it. We cannot found a modern, healthy nationalism on a lie. It was quite interesting. So he was totally ostracized and dissed. 
Now here comes the interesting part. A couple of years went by, and then as happens, the popular frenzy abates, and the sober second thought kicks in, and people start to use reason where formerly they had emotion, and after a while, they say, you know, the guy had guts to stand up for what he thinks was right, and looking back, I don't really know if the guy really did it, and others, they imamish, imamish think the Jews use blood from matzah and all that, it was even the Czechs themselves, it took time, it took years, and when they look back, they start to feel ashamed of themselves, and then they, instead of dissing him, all of a sudden they become a hero, a moral hero. He said, you know, you got to give him credit that he had the, the guts to stand up for what he thought was right, and out of that emerged his image as the moral leader of the Czech people. And since he um, was opposed to the blood libel, it morphed into him being opposed to anti-Semitism, and he even went on to say the Jews are a part of the country, and they not only should not be persecuted, but they should have full civil rights, just being human beings. And since he started the country of Czechoslovakia, uh, for the 20 years or so in between World War I and World War II, when Prague here, where I'm sitting on the, on the cafe outside, when Prague was the capital of this country, this was the headquarters of the only country in Europe, Central and, and Eastern Europe, that was, I won't say pro-Semitic, but I might, but certainly had friend relations toward the Jews. They supported the Zionist movement. They supported the Hasidim. There are many photographs of Maastricht with Chaim Zenefeld, with the Munkach Rebbe, believe it or not, and with other people, simply because they said like this, they're normal people, they're human beings, they want to be Orthodox Jews, that's their business, as long as not breaking the law, they're part of the country, they're, 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 they're not against us. And I can tell you, because my mother lived here, that the Jews in the 1920s and 30s, even the super-duper frummies, were very patriotic for Czechoslovakia as a result of this. I used to know Rabbi Monk in Baltimore, who was learned in Pressburg in the high school over there, and he said in 1938, when it was a crisis with the Munich crisis, he and his brother wanted to volunteer in the Czech army, even though they're the yeshiva guys. It's just a very interesting kind of culture. Later on, Masaryk died and Hitler took over the country in World War II, you know, and killed out the Jews. And after the war, there was a short break, but then the communists took over in 1948. Once the communists took over, as I said before, they're particularly disgusting, and they went very anti-Semitic and very anti-Israel. They were like a major headquarters for the PLO and the other Arab territories. I'm serious, you look it up, you see the Czechs supplied them with weapons and training and all kind of junk like that. They really, really were very, very big. In 1990, they got rid of the communists, they overthrew them, and the leader of the country became Václav Havel, famous writer, a dissident writer, and he said, I want to pick up where, um, where Masaryk left off. And ever since then, and he visited Israel, ever since then the Czech government has been very uh, pro-Israel. Uh, they also hate the Arabs over here, which helps them being pro-Israel. It's a pretty interesting the way this works out. Anyway, I babbled enough for uh, a short afternoon. The weather here, by the way, I read it and weep in America, we're like 65 degrees. <laughs> Imagine in July, it's 65 degrees. It's uh, very pleasant. Um, the shuls are a sad situation because, like I say, turn something in a museum means it's dead. I can't go into the kever, but you know, it's a, obviously a big people over here whose kavarim have been spared, although a lot of regular Jews and famous rabbis of kavarim have not been spared and destroyed by the communists. It leaves you with a funny feeling, you know, there are positive feelings as well as negative feelings when you're in a city like Prague, but this was the major center, I would even say, of Torah scholarship for a couple hundred years. Think about it. that's a big statement I just made. You had some world-class 
figures over here. And in this small area down, I'm sitting in the area called the old former Jewish quarter, Yosefov. You can't, it's been a, it's totally facelifted. You know, you know, there's nothing left over hardly from the old days. They did urban renewal around 1899, so you can't see it. But in these streets, when they were narrow and dirty, when Jews lived there and all the rest of it, included not a yeshiva, but multiple yeshivas. You want to say? Multiple yeshivas. And it's hard to imagine where to even fit the boys. They must have done the old school, which is Pasra, you know, you, uh, bread and water. You know, you sleep on the floor and uh, no shoes and you're cold in the winter. And once upon a time, our ancestor, we have people like that, that for the privilege of studying Torah in a, in a, with a renowned scholar, they're willing to give up five, ten years of uh, Gashmias. I mean, super give up Gashmias. It's just a very interesting place to be in that particular regard. There's a lot more to say about Prague. I don't know if I'll have time to do another podcast on this since I'm here, but uh, I'll think about it. But meanwhile, that's enough for now. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.